we want to do in these weeks leading up to the celebration of Christmas. What we want to do in this new sermon series that we started last week, which I'll talk about in a moment, is we want to keep ourselves focused. This is our goal every year at Advent. This isn't like we're doing that this year. This is, this is every year. And that is with all of this stuff happening and all of this activity and busyness that's wonderful in so many ways that we don't lose sight of what Christmas really means to us. That we don't lose sight of, of the real gift that we celebrate in Christ. And because it is so easy to do. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, for Christmas, Christmas morning, families gathered around the tree as we are every year, and uh, opening gifts, and, and we try to, to do it um, systematically. We try to do it, you know, one at a time, so we can all kind of participate. And it all starts off that way. That's the way it begins, and by the end of the morning, it's basically everybody's funding for themselves. And, and by the, there's, there's, there's Christmas paper, and there's wrapping, and there's boxes. You know the drill. And uh, on this Christmas morning, Tony had bought me a couple dress shirts, shirts that I very often wear on Sunday mornings. And she, she very often, when she does that, she picks out a tie for me. So she buys a tie because she knows what a challenge that can be for me. So she tries to make it easy. And she had bought, um, bought me a royal blue shirt. And, uh, and a beautiful tie. And I remember opening it. I remember looking at the tie. I remember thinking, that's a really nice tie. And that's the last time we've seen that tie. <laughs> we haven't found it since. I don't know what she did with it, but she lost my tie. Um, <laughs> that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> Here's what we're pretty sure happened. The gift got lost in everything else. You know how you pick up the wrapping paper, you pick up the boxes, you throw the secondary things away. I'm, I'm, there's the only explanation we have is that the time must have ended up in some of that and got thrown. Can we lost a battery? All right. Well, we'll do it here at the beginning.
That's good, because I don't think my voice was going to make it doing it that way very long. <laughs> Would have been a really short sermon, and don't you dare amen that. <laughs> so, so we want to we anticipate, we want to figure out what it is. Well, hundreds of years before Jesus is born, the prophets foretold of his coming. God gave the prophets insight into what he was promising, what he was giving. And for years and years and years, the people anticipated Messiah. And the prophets' words became that um, symbolic rattling of the gifts for them to figure out what's the shape, what's the size, what's the weight, what is this promised Messiah going to be? And so the words of the prophets begin to help us understand the very character and nature of Jesus, even though we have that full revelation. We now look back on the birth of Jesus, and we know the story, and we know the Gospels. But still, going to those prophets allows us to begin to have a little deeper understanding of not only what God promised, but who Jesus would become and who he is for us. And so, with that mindset of anticipation, we read these words this morning from Isaiah chapter 53. And I'm going to stop a couple places and just share a few thoughts. But as we read these 12 verses, it's the entire chapter. These are the, the words that were spoken hundreds of years before Jesus comes, but they so powerfully describe who he would be. And so we begin at verse 1. This is what we read. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now I want you to hear that. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Remember if you were here last week, I said that the, the birth of Jesus was miraculous. But it was not spectacular. It was ordinary. It was easy to miss. It was nothing that would draw much attention at the time that he was born. That's why most people had no idea. It was miraculous, but it was not spectacular. This text says that, that his appearance, there's nothing to attract us to him, nothing, no outward beauty to attract, no, nothing in his appearance that would, that would draw us to him. He was ordinary. He was ordinary. Now see, the, the problem is that doesn't resonate with us because when we see Jesus dramatized, when we see the pictures, when we, when we watch the movies, that's not the way we depict it. Jesus is always the best-looking guy in the bunch. You know, when, when he emerges on the scene, Jesus is, I mean, he's like the model of humanity, and, and we create this image, this ideal image of Jesus that nobody could miss him. I remember years ago watching, maybe you've seen, Johnny Cash did a, did a rendition of the gospel story years ago with music. It's, it's unique, um, depending on, on your perspective. Very, very unique. But um, Jesus emerges on the scene in one of the, the gospel stories that gets told. And, and here he comes down the path. And I mean, Jesus is, I mean, he's Brad Pitt kind of thing. I mean, blonde hair, blue eyes, very Middle Eastern looking, you know, that kind of a thing. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. Just like what you'd see in Israel. Um, but, but the point is, they, they, you know, we, we, want, we want him to be perfect in every way. And so we make him this kind of perfect figure in our minds. That's not what the prophet says. There's nothing about him that would draw us outwardly to him. So, so he's ordinary in, in every sense of the word. In the verse 3, he was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces. 
You hear that? Like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. Each, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Let me stop there for a moment. He was oppressed and afflicted. You know, Jesus identifies with all of us. He seeks to connect with all of us. But make no mistake, the Gospels affirm that Jesus most identifies, most connects, most deeply yearns for the oppressed and the afflicted, the outcast, the marginalized, the cast aside. The Gospels over and over show us how Jesus sought them out. He has the hardest connecting with, the hardest identifying with the oppressors, the afflicted, the well-off, the comfortable, because he seeks those that he can most identify with because it became his story as well. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, speak to us your truth, your word, your hope and your peace in our lives that we may know of your love and be strengthened by your presence. We pray this in Christ Jesus. Amen. (coughs) So, this passage, Isaiah 53, uh, this is not light reading. This is not um, happy reading. This is a dark passage. This is a a somber passage. This is a weighty passage. I mean, over and over, it talks of the Messiah as the one who will be wounded, who will be bruised, who will be um, rejected, who will be despised, who will suffer, and who will die. And this is the prophet foretelling what God is going to do through the giving of his Son, it's, it's the prophet saying that God knows what's coming. When he chooses to enter human history, when he chooses to enter our story, when the Messiah comes, God knows exactly what his story is going to be. Wounded, bruised, rejected, suffering. And God does it anyway. And God does it anyway. I mean, I read this, I look at this, and I think, Why? Why? Why would God choose this? Why would God do this? 
How do we make sense of God knowing what's coming and taking that path anyway? And here's the only conclusion I can come to. God is crazy for us. God is crazy for us. This, at its heart, it's love. Now, it doesn't sound that way, at least not at the surface level. But why else would God choose this path? Why else would God allow this to be the story if it wasn't the revelation of how deeply and passionately he loves us? And the truth is this, and most of you know this in your own life. Love makes us do crazy things. All of us do crazy things for love. I mean, what else except for love can explain the fact that I once sat through a four-hour dance recital to watch my daughter dance for six minutes. Six! And don't think I didn't time it. Four hours for six minutes. That is not a preacher exaggeration. Tony can testify, because she did too. Six minutes. Or, to be fair, sit through a three-hour music recital to watch my little boy at the time play one song on his little three-quarter guitar. That's kind of panned out pretty well for him. But, um, but that would allow, or, or the craziest of all, the fact that I once gave up an opportunity to get season tickets to Duke basketball to travel home to Florida for a family gathering that my young bride really wanted to attend. Crazy! She's rationalizing it over here. I see her talking. She's rationalizing it over here, but, but she knows what I did for love. That's crazy. It's crazy. You've done crazy stuff for love. Now hear me say, I'm not comparing anything you or I have ever done to what God did in, Je for Je in Jesus for us. But it's love. It's the story of God's love for us that says, though he will be wounded, Though he will be bruised, though he will be despised, though he will be cast aside for our sins, I'm coming anyway. I'm coming anyway. Because that's how much I love you. That's how much I want you to know you matter to me. This is a story of God's deep, passionate love. And if you think about it, it's illogical. It just makes no sense. And it's one of the hardest things for us to wrap our minds around. I, I came across an article it was through NASA, or through a scientist through NASA, was talking about just the vast expanse of the universe. And it was talking about the fact that through the Hubble telescope, we now have the ability to see 13.2 billion light years beyond ourselves. 
Okay, uh, yeah, try to, try to wrap your mind. But then, if you really just even want to get even sillier with it, the fact that because the universe is expanding, that that is actually a breadth, if we're at the center, of 45 billion light years away from us that we can now see. And if you've, you know, you know science or you watch Discovery Channel or any of these, you know just the, the exorbitant, the unfathomable reaches and size and breadth of, of, of the known universe. In fact, they had one of the, the pictures. You, you've probably seen at some point. It was from the Hubble telescope. It's a decade ago. And it just looks like, I mean, just hundreds of little stars. I mean, there are lights all over and there's various sizes and, and um, you know, luminescent um, qualities. But, but it's just a, it's a picture. It's a, just a picture. It's framed with these dots of light. It said that it was from the Hubble telescope. It said that when you look at that picture, each dot of light that you're looking at does not represent a star or a planet. It represents a galaxy. And there are thousands upon thousands and millions of known galaxies. The point is, it's just mind-boggling how big the universe is. And one of the, the, the things that sometimes I've heard atheists argue or agnostics argue, they say, how in your right mind could think, if you believe in a God that created all of this, why would you think that he would care anything about us? We are so, in that scope, so insignificant. I mean, think about it when you've been on an airplane. Just, I mean, they're not even comparable. We're on an airplane. Life seems so small when you're 35,000 feet above. And yet, look at the, expand that out beyond our comprehension. Why would God care about us? That's a good question. Why would God care about us? And there's only one illogical answer. Love. He loves us. And he created us for a relationship with him. And he's desperate for us to have that relationship. And he wants us to know two things. He wants us to know the love that he has for us. And then he calls us to live that love. I mean, that's the heart of the gospel, to know God's love and to make that love known. You want to boil it down, that's what it is. We're called to know we are loved and to share that love. And Isaiah 53 says to the people then, as it says to us, this is how far he's willing to go. This is the extent he's willing to reach so that you will know he's loved. So the heart of Isaiah 53 is about love, but then it also reveals another truth, and that is the character of love. And the character of love is sacrifice. You know, I mean, uh, and, uh, and, and all joking aside, why, do you, why, do, uh, why does a parent sit through a four-hour dance recital? Because you love that little girl that's going to be up there dancing or that little boy that's going to be playing or whatever it is. Why? Why do we do what we do? Because love is, in its nature, sacrificial. And the perfect love of God is the most extreme gift of sacrifice that we can know over and over. Wounded, bruised, oppressed, judged, and yet he loved. In fact, I, I heard, I heard a, a preacher say that, that when we choose to follow Christ, we embrace suffering. This, this text in Isaiah 53 is called the suffering servant. That to walk with Jesus is to embrace suffering. And, and I will admit to you, I bristled at that a little bit. Because who wants to suffer? Nobody here wants to suffer. If you're signing up for that, let's get you to a counselor. 
Okay, we, we don't want that. And I started to think, is that really what we're signing up for? Paul talks about that. He talks over and over about his identification and his rejoicing in his suffering and, and counting suffering a blessing. And I thought, is, is that what it is? Is it that we're to embrace suffering? And, and the more I thought about it, the more, more I was challenged. I don't, I don't think it's that God calls us to embrace suffering. What God calls us to do is to embrace sacrificial love. To embrace sacrificial love. And you know what? Love has a cost. Sometimes that cost is deep. And those wounds are deep. And the hurt is deep. And nobody knows that more than Jesus. His life was characterized by suffering because of his love. He loved his disciples. And he suffered when they turned and ran in his moment of need. He loved the people that he came to to preach the good news to. And his heart broke when they walked away from that word of hope and grace that he offered. He loved people who were afflicted. And his heart broke when they were cast aside, which is why he healed and restored over and over. Or when people heard his word and they turned away, his heart broke. When he was nailed to a cross and the people that he came to love mocked him. His heart broke, and he suffered. But the suffering was always rooted in his love. Paul counts it a blessing to suffer. Why? Because in his suffering, he knew he was living out Christ's love. And he knew that Christ was with him. That's the truth. You know, we do suffer in life. Sometimes by our own making, sometimes by the making of others, sometimes just by the the course of of life that that can be blamed on no one other than the reality of existence. But we suffer. What the prophet wants us to know, what the Gospels proclaim over and over, is we never suffer alone. That the one who knew suffering is with us. The one who knew pain heals our pain. The the, The one who knew weakness becomes our strength. We can find his perfect love that's at work in our imperfect love. I have a friend of mine who's battling cancer, stage four prostate cancer. Uh, prognosis, not good. But by God's grace, there's some healing taking place. But it's a tough journey, and some of you know it firsthand, what that journey is like. And every time he goes to a doctor's visit, every time he goes for a cancer treatment, he has no idea what's that day is going to bring. It brings a lot of anxiety because he never knows how his blood counts are going to be, whether the tumor's larger, whether the tumor's smaller, how his body's going to react to that round of treatment. Every time, it's, you know, anxiety-inducing. But every time he goes, he goes with this mindset. Who can I share Jesus with today? Every time he sits in a waiting room and waits for treatment, he looks to talk to somebody to tell him about Jesus. Every time he goes back to his doctors and nurses, he looks for opportunities to tell them about Jesus. Respectfully, not, not pushing, not, not judgment, just to respectfully let them know that they're loved. How does that happen? How does somebody in that greatest need, when we are most tempted to be inward focused, become outward focused? It's because he knows Jesus is with them. He knows Jesus is with him, and he finds strength in the one who knew suffering 
that is present in the midst of his suffering. And it has created in him a laser focus. He doesn't know how many days he has left, but he knows what the purpose of the days are that he has left. And that's to share Christ's love. The sacrificial love that Christ offers is the sacrificial love we're called to live. And Jesus becomes our example. And this is why. Because through his love comes redemption. Through his love comes redemption. And we are invited to participate in that redemption. In fact, that's how it ends. This dark, heavy, weighty passage says that after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. It goes on to say, because he poured out his life unto death, he was numbered with the transgressors, he more the sin of many, he made intercession for the transgressors. This is what God does in Jesus. He says to us, you will never be separated from me. Paul says in Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Hardship, difficulties, life, death, heights, depths, nothing. And so that in our journey, in our walk, in our difficulty, in our joys, in our sorrows, we never ever walk alone. We never have to fear that we're cut off from the love of God, that God's hand is removed from us. That's what God's love looks like. That's the love of somebody that looks upon those who nailed them to a cross and says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That's the love of a father that says, I'm going to send my son even though you will reject him. He will die for your sins. He will suffer for you. I send him anyway so that you will know there is nothing you can do outrun my love. There's nothing you can do to be beyond my reach. There's nothing you can do to exhaust my mercy. His suffering becomes our hope. His oppression becomes our liberation. His death becomes our life. Philippians 2, a passage I quote from all the time. It says, though he was in the form of God, talking about Jesus, he did not equate with equality with God as something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a slave, humbling himself even to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's his love. But it goes on and says that because of that, he will be exalted, lifted up to the high place so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee shall bow in heaven and under the heavens. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In his suffering comes exaltation. In his suffering comes our redemption. In his death, we are offered life. And that becomes our hope and our reason for love. Brothers and sisters, we are called to live the gospel. Love God, love others, no matter the cost. Easy to say, hard to do. How are you living the gospel? How am I living the gospel? The people waited for the one who would come, despised, wounded, bruised, and through it they were healed, and we are healed, and made whole and restored. How are you living the gospel? It's all about love. Love God. Love others. Amen? Let's pray. Gracious Lord, challenge us, move us, Make us uncomfortable where we need to be, but help us to love the way you loved. To pour out ourselves the way you have been poured out. To give as we have received. Help us to live the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.